And my aim here in the next 20 or so minutes is to help us ask a question. And that question is, what story are you living in? What story are you living in? Everyone has in the back of their heads, some of us it's more conscious than others. There is a way the world works in your thinking. There is a reason for your existing. There is a purpose for why you are on the world, or perhaps there is no purpose in the story that you have in your head. You could think of it like this. The big questions are four. How did we get here? Why are we here? What's wrong with the world? And what happens after we die? If you can answer those four questions, you have some of the most fundamental questions a human being can ask straight in your thinking, okay? Most people do not have what's called a coherent worldview or a coherent view of the world. In other words, how did we get here? Why are we here? What's the purpose of human beings? What's wrong with the world? Everybody knows that the world is screwed up and messed up, and we know that we ourselves are screwed up and messed up, and we say things to each other like, nobody's perfect, right? Nobody's perfect. And so how do you explain that? And then lastly, what about the afterlife? Most all people seem to think there is some kind of afterlife. And so the question that I want you to be asking is, what story am I living in? And before we start to get into the Scripture, this is a, a Bible-believing church. We believe the Bible is true in all 66 books. We believe that the center of that Bible story is Jesus, and that's what we're going to try to unpack for you today. For those of you who are children in the room, I have good news. On the back right table, my right, are coloring sheets and clipboards and markers and crayons to keep you occupied. So any children in the room, now or anytime, we love kids here. And so kids moving around, kids rustling, kids making kid noises, we love that, okay? And I hope you love it too. Uh, but kids, feel free. If you wanna go back on the back table to my right, grab a clipboard, grab some coloring sheets, grab some markers, grab some crayons, feel free to do that right now. It looks like some of you want to. I think if you go, others will follow you. So feel free, go ahead. Don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Usually when one goes, then the rest will follow. All right, so again, back to the question. What story are you living in? I don't have to tell you that if you went to public school, or if your kids are in public school, or if you went to any major university that's not Christian, you were taught what is called the theory of evolution as if it was fact. But the truth is, the story of evolution is just that, it's a story. And you believe it based on faith or a trust in that story's truthfulness. But it is not a fact. In fact, if you dabble in philosophy at all, all philosophers will tell you that there is no way to empirically prove any origin story, right? We're, we're, a, we're a modern, empirically obsessed culture, meaning we want to be able to test and hypothesize and then test again and hypothesize until we come to fact. But the truth is, how do you know we're not living in some kind of simulation right now plugged into some machine? How do you know? Can you prove empirically that you're not dreaming right now? Can you prove empirically 
that we're not in some kind of matrix-esque story where machines are using us as batteries and we're actually living inside of the computer, inside of this code. You can't prove any of that. And so in the same way, you cannot prove that the story of evolution is true. But this is the story that is kind of common in American schools and in American universities, and it goes something like this, okay? We humans and all life came from an infinite and eternal, either one energy or two matter, okay? There was in the deep past, eternity past, there was either some kind of eternal energy that existed, that always existed, or there was some kind of eternal matter that existed. And it was squashed into this infinite point, and at some point in eternity past, there was an explosion, And then, as that explosion unfolded with time, order and reproduction and DNA and eventually skyscrapers and Amazon Prime came to be. And and this story is very popular and it's very common. But here's the question I need to ask you, okay? Think about it. It's energy plus matter plus time equals complexity beyond what any of you can explain to me as far as cells and the DNA strands and the information encoded in a rabbit or a badger. Like, none of you can unpack that for me uh, right now, okay? It's so complex, it takes scientists to even dumb down their terminology to explain how these things work, okay? So, I want you to do a thought experiment with me. Hey, unfortunately, you can look out of our uh, church in any of the, of the four directions, north, south, east, west, okay? and you will see abandoned and run-down buildings. That is a ministry that we as a church seek to help with by rehabbing buildings and beautifying during the, city, uh, the summer months, but it's a, it's a fact. Now, here's what happens. If you leave your home go and you don't repair the roof, and you don't mess with the plumbing, and you don't change your water heater, and you don't get new shingles eventually, does it just automatically remodel itself and grow into greater complexity? No, it it turns into chaos and disorder and destruction. And so why do we think, so do this, okay? You have a vehicle. You're like, man, oil changes cost too much money. And so, to save some money, I'm just not going to change my oil, because what do those mechanics know anyway, right? Now, you know that if you don't change your oil, yeah, you might go 5,000, 10,000, maybe even 15,000 miles, but what's going to happen is eventually that car is going to lock up, and you're either going to have to junk it, or you're going to have to pay for a new engine. Why? Because it requires you to maintain your car, okay? My car just recently needed brakes and rotors, and praise God, my father has shown me how to do that, and so my hands were all greasy. But what would happen is that as I was going about 55 plus miles an hour down a hill, and I'd hit the brakes, it was like... Now, if I just said, you know what, that plus time will equal new rotors and new brakes. In fact, better ones, better ones than were on it before, because that's how the world works. You'd be like, that's ridiculous. So why do we believe that about the origins of all things? It seems a bit ridiculous, doesn't it? Yet it's given to us as if it's fact, and we just swallow it like, oh, yes, of course. We all came from lifeless amoeba, and then we somehow grew tails like tadpoles, and eventually we started to walk, et cetera, okay? Now, I am being a bit 
satirical here on purpose, okay? Because we don't treat the evolutionary story, energy plus time plus tons of more time will equal complexity beyond your imagination and order. It doesn't work in any other sphere of life. But you know what it does? It allows us, if you believe that, it allows us to buy into the modern concept that humanity as it is needs to evolve to the next level. And so, if you're a man but you want to be a woman, hey, we've been evolving for millions and millions of years. Why not evolve into a woman if you're a man? Or if you're a man and you want to evolve into a woman, well, you could do that because that's what we've been doing forever. Or how about the, the transhumanist community? Any transhumanists in the room? I didn't think so, but they exist. Google it. They want to see us merge with machines, and they want to see us be a race of cyborgs. And I'm not kidding. Like, these are brilliant scientists in the tech world who want me to have some kind of dope mechanical arm, like Luke Skywalker someday, right? And I'm, maybe I'm cool with that. I haven't figured out the ethics, but the idea is we need to continue to evolve and get humanity to the next level of evolution, okay? And it allows us, if there's no higher being, then we are at the top of the food chain. You see, human beings have climbed the ladder, we have reached the top, and we are small G gods. That's what that story allows for. And so for some of us who like the evolutionary story, perhaps we like it because it allows us to be the highest beings in the universe. Until you, you know, listen to a Joe Rogan podcast on aliens, and then you're like, well, maybe not. Maybe, maybe we're not alone, you know? And, and some of us, that's, that's a very real thing. Your worldview is we got here by some kind of intelligent life way out there in another galaxy, and, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy 1, 2, and 3 are your Bible. It's, it's Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus to you, you know? And I'm joking, okay? I'm joking. I am being intentionally satirical here, okay? I'm trying to get you to laugh a little bit, a little bit. Now, imagine your bodies, okay? You just leave your body alone. You're like, I don't need to shower. I don't need to go to the dentist. I don't need to brush my teeth. Like, your body's going to decay quick, right? Right? And so, again, I'm just pointing out, we don't treat this kind of like energy and matter and time eventually will lead to complexity and order and beauty. No, it, it never happens in your experience. And so why do we buy it that that's how we got here? Why do we buy that? Hey, you don't buy it. You believe it by faith. That's the truth. You can't empirically prove it. Okay. Here's what I want to ask you. I'm going to ask you a question in the form of a C.S. Lewis quote. C.S. Lewis is famous for Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, Disney picked that up maybe 20 years ago and started to do the movies, uh, but they didn't do too great, so we're waiting for the next big company to pick them up and start it again. But Lewis, in a book called Mere Christianity, was arguing that science cannot prove or disprove God's existence. Okay, and this is what you hear all the time. Science has disproved God. Well, here's the problem, as C.S. Lewis would put it. Since that power, if it exists, would not be one of the observed facts, but a reality which makes them. And he's using power as God himself. So listen again. Since that power, if it exists, would not be one of the observed facts, but a reality which makes them. No more observation of the facts can find it. Hey, here's, here's what Lewis is arguing in a very complex sentence. He's saying, if God is supernatural, above the natural, if he is metaphysical, 
then our observation of matter and what we can feel and touch and observe with our hands and microscopes and electronic microscopes, if God is outside of that realm completely, we should not expect to be able to find Him by science. And this is what the Bible teaches. The Bible says we live in God's being and creation itself. And so theologians and authors would say it like this. You have one circle. This is reality, okay? One circle that contains all that we know, the universe and all that we know. And in a holy other, W-H-O-L-L-Y, other circle is God. And this circle depends completely on this circle. Okay, so Lewis, again, since that power, God, if it exists, would not be one of the observed facts, but a reality which makes them. He himself makes the facts. No more observation of the facts can find it. Now, the Bible's account, friends, of how did we get here, why are we here, what's wrong with the world, what happens after we die, it is tight and clear, and it coincides with all of your experience. The Bible's story of human origin, what's wrong with us, like how do we get right, what happens, all, all that is tight and clean and compelling. Okay? And so that's what I want to do for you. Okay? You might not believe this, and I can't empirically prove this. I can't empirically prove that this story is true as much as you can't empirically prove that the Big Bang and the evolution story is true, because you can't empirically prove it. We trust that the Bible was handed down over 2,000 years ago, okay? and it is faithful in all that it teaches. And so we trust that the, what the Bible says is true. Now quickly, here's how the Bible starts human origin. In the beginning, God, period. And so I want to stop here for just a second and, and get you to think about this. You ready? What makes more sense of reality? There was this impersonal energy or matter that existed for eternity, or because something had to be for all eternity, because you can't get something from nothing. That is impossible. Or does it make more sense that there was an eternal, uncreated intelligence who reveals himself in the Bible as Yahweh, and then later into the New Testament as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And being that you are intelligent, and you have emotions, and you have uh, will, and you can create, and wouldn't it be more logical to think that God who is all those things and more made us in His image, like the Bible says we did, like the Bible says He did? It makes more logical sense if you ask me that personality comes from a person versus complex personality comes from impersonal energy or matter. Which one makes more sense? And so the Bible says in the beginning was God. Nothing else existed. And God, that God created the heavens and the earth. What we know of it as the nurse and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the, over the waters. And then if you continue to read the Genesis account, one and two, what you will see is God created all life, animal life, plant life, and angelic life even, okay? And what we know is we as human beings of what the Latin calls the Imago Dei or the image of God. 
And friends, this explains why human beings have dignity, value, and worth. Every single human being, regardless if they're geniuses or whether they are, you know, on a, on a ventilator and it's keeping them alive. Whether they have, you know, fantastic basketball, great argumentative power for why we should be about protecting human triangle-looking crabs and hermit crabs and kinds of crabs. God, why do we need all these crabs? And he's like, I wanted to make a variety of crabs. What's it to you? You know, like I wanted to display my glory in a thousand varieties of beetles. Right? Like I wanted to display my glory in 8,000 human beings and none of them at the DNA level or in the physical are, are, are exactly the same, exactly the same. None of them. Yeah? And God is saying, I'm just showing you who I am. That's my glory. Why would God create a vast emptiness, a vast emptiness outside of the earth? Why, why is there so many galaxies within themselves containing billions and billions of stars? Why is that? Well, Psalm 19 just says it like this very simply. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim His handiwork. Day after day, they pour forth speech. There isn't a language on all the earth in which God is just saying, look at me. Enjoy my glory. I made this for you to look at because it says something about me. And so what happened to us? If, if God made us in His image and we were made good and we were made perfect, what happened? Well, the Bible has that answer as well. It's in Genesis 3, just two chapters after we're created. Uh, we learn of this serpent named Satan, and he deceives our first parents, Adam and Eve, into disobeying God. There was one commandment. Parents broke that commandment. It was, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And for the first time in human history, here in Genesis chapter 3, human beings are hiding from each other, right? They're, they're not comfortable fully exposed to another. And we're still doing that, right? It's just our clothes are a little more expensive, you know? You could buy a polo at, at Ralph Lauren for, you know, 150 to $200. That's an expensive fig leaf, man. But that's what it is. Right, think about the purpose of clothes. It's to, yeah, protect you from the environment, but also to hide you. Right? And then later, God is so gracious, He actually uh, sacrifices two animals. He kills them, and He makes them skins to wear. He makes them a leather coat. And He's like, yo, you walk past one, I'm from Pittsburgh, Jagger bush, and man, them fig leaves are done. That's not, that's not a great design there. So let me give you something that's going to last. And so he, he gives them leather, right? what, what our shoes are made of, and your leather coat that you wear when you ride your motorcycle, etc. And so here we see the first two human beings falling into sin, actually not falling, but choosing to sin against God. And then when they have children, their children inherit that sin nature that they acquired in this moment. And when their children had children and their children had children and their children had children, we all come out of the womb sinners. And this is why the expression is just a common truth, nobody's perfect. We're like, well, yeah, of course. Why? Why are there no perfect people? Why are there no good people? Okay, th this is a common exercise that, that 
pastors and theologians like to use, and so I'll use it. Let's just take this afternoon and morning's thoughts that you had. Let's transcribe them, and let's throw them up on the screen for us all to read. How many of you'd be like, ooh, me first? No, all of us would be like, no, 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 please don't do that. Why is that? Because you know that there's something wrong with the way you think, and you want that to stay inside and not come out. You're messed up, and I'm messed up. Right? Like, I'm not doing that either. We're not going to have my thoughts up on the screen, okay? I get to tell you a limited version of my thoughts (laughs) right now, but you're not getting all of them. No, no. Why not? Because we are sinners, This is what the Bible says is wrong with the world. Human beings are sinners, and we sin against each other. You sin against other people, and other people sin against you, okay? That big umbrella called sin, you could just unpack every wrong thing in the world, from lying to cheating to stealing to slavery to mocking to backbiting and gossip, et cetera. We, it's all under this umbrella of sin. Why do we do it? And why do we know intuitively all those categories I just gave you? Okay? Because you've experienced it. This is what the Bible says has happened. Now, as human beings progressed, they got worse, right? And Genesis 6 tells us that God literally had to cleanse the entire earth with a flood, Okay? And we're not going to unpack that, but just read the Genesis account. It's a, it's a fascinating story. And if you'd rather have it read to you and explained, our church just last week finished a series on all 50 chapters. And so you can go to eternalcity.org and just listen to each of the messages, and it will be unpacked for you. But it's an amazing account of how we got here and what's wrong with us. And here's the question, what are we for? What are we for? Like, Is your purpose just to make money? Like, I exist to work and watch that number grow, baby. I just, I want to feed my Vanguard account and my, you know, my Robinhood account and watch my stocks increase and get some Bitcoin. That's why I exist, to increase my net worth, okay? I would encourage you, if that's your purpose for living, read the book of Ecclesiastes, please. And we also went through that book. So if you'd like to, go back to eternalcity.org, and you can listen to all the messages that explain it. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, uh, the the preacher, the teacher says. You are for this one overarching thing, friends, to enjoy God and by enjoying Him, glorify Him. That's why you exist. And so, when, when you recognize God in all things, because as the Apostle Paul said in Acts 17, in Him, God, we live and move and have our being. Without God, there's no life, there's no movement, there's no being itself. We all find our existence upheld in God Himself. And so, all other things God creates and sustains. And so, when you enjoy that Cobb salad from Chick-fil-A, yes and amen to Chick-fil-A, right? Uh, and that's… Anyway, I could go further on that. I'll let it go. I'm just going to let that one go, okay? It's terrible it's not open on Sundays, but it is what it is. It's terrible. You know? How many of you have gone to a Chick-fil-A on Sunday and been like, dang it? I have. Definitely. Oh, yeah. You pull in. You're like, why is no one here? It's Sunday. What's the matter with these Christians? You know, you know why? It's, if you didn't know, you can actually see in their mission statement, they close on Sunday so that their employees have the option they're not forced to go and worship at a house of worship like this. That's why. 
They don't want to uh, implode. Uh, they don't want to put on their employees, you have to work while your church is worshiping. And I, I respect that highly, which is why I'll buy that, that spicy chicken sandwich every time, every time. All right, so as, as we progress, this is what the book of Romans tells us, okay? This is what you're for, and this is the problem, okay? So we're further unpacking the problem, and we're still answering the question, what are you for? All right, you ready? The Apostle Paul, some of you know him as St. Paul. He wrote to the church at Rome. This is probably the greatest letter ever written. And by the way, we've gone through this book. And so if you want to go to eternalcity.org, you can listen to all the messages that we've unpacked. This Romans 1.18 tells us why God is upset. And God, why are, you, why are you upset? He tells us. The wrath of God, that means anger, is revealed from heaven against what? all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men, and that men is mankind, not just biological men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, okay? Now, suppression is this, okay? How many of you have ever floated on a raft in a pool or in a river or on the ocean, right? You've, you've floated on a, on a beach ball, you've done that, right? You've got to try to keep your balance. When you try to press a raft under the water or press a beach ball under the water, what happens? It just keeps trying to press back up on you, but you keep suppressing it and it just keeps pushing back up against you. That's you trying to deny the existence of God and His knocking on your consciousness. He's always knocking and you won't open the door. And so God is upset. Why? Because of unrighteousness. We know we're wrong. We know there's a problem. We know that God is good. If there is a God and He's holy and He's the judge, then we don't want to have God in our consciousness. And this is what happens. What can be known about God is plain to them. Who's them? All humanity. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown them for His invisible attributes. Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. You can see it. How? Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So what Paul is arguing here is, look, humans have no excuse. God is so glorious and so complex in what he's made that if you just look out at the creation, you have to logically conclude something or someone made this. Just like if you were to come into my house and see all the artwork displayed, I, I love art, you wouldn't say, this must have just appeared out of nothing. But it's beautiful. No, the, no one does that. Everyone assumes an artist. Okay, we look at that piece of art and that piece of art and that piece of art and that piece of art, and we say, someone made that and they got skills. Yet we look at an aardvark and a badger and a platypus and we're like, eternal energy. It's amazing. It's amazing. Right? You look at glowing fish in the Caribbean, or for that matter, you look at an infant, right? And, and you're like, eternal matter plus a lot of time. That's gorgeous, right? Praise eternal matter from whom all things flow. And, and again, I'm being a bit facetious, but, but I'm, I'm trying to get you to see, we don't do this with any human horizontal thing, yet we do it to God, right? We, we look at the Caribbean and we're like, it just happened. Yet it's one of the most beautiful things on the planet. Wouldn't it make more sense to say some amazing, powerful author, creator did this? 
And here's the amazing claim of the Bible. You can know him. Not just know about him like facts, like you read the biography of George W. Bush or Barack Obama. No, you can know him like you know your friend or your spouse or your children. You can have a relationship with this creator God. That's what you were made for. You were made to enjoy him by enjoying what he has created and know him intimately, relationally. And God is upset because we keep suppressing this truth that God is and that God is righteous and that we are not. Verse 21, for although they knew God, okay, Paul is claiming all people know God inherently from what has been made. And in, later in chapter 2, he says, because of the conscience he gave you, your right and wrong detector, everybody knows that God exists. Hi, let me ask you a question. How is it that when someone lies to you, you're like, I've been done wrong, injustice. But yet when you lie about someone else or to someone else, you're like, hey, nobody's perfect, right? Like how is it that you can perceive someone's done you wrong, but then you can go and do the same thing and make excuses for yourself? You've broken logic, right? We all do. And so here Paul say, says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. What I just said was an expression of futile thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's the created order reversed. Mortal man, then birds, then animals, then creeping things. Okay? And it's pointing to idols, right? In, in the first century when this was written, idolatry was a real thing, and the Greek and Ro the Greco-Roman gods were all over the place, and you know, you can watch Clash of the Titans and learn about them if you're a Clash of the Titans, Titans type of guy or girl. And so here, the problem is that we suppress the truth, okay? And I'm almost done. I know I'm taking more time than, than you would appreciate, so thank you. Thank you for tolerating me. What, what happens after we die? Okay, this is the last question I'm going to try to answer here. Did you know that you can know what happens to you after you die? Do you know the Bible claims that? Like, you don't have to wonder. You don't have to lay at night thinking, what is going to come of me when I take my last breath? That, that answer is clearly laid out in the Bible for us. And here, it, in John chapter 1, John, St. John for some of you, writes that that very God who created all things, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Son became one of us. The eternal creator, eternally uncreated, became one of his creation, us. So God made us in his image, and then God comes in our image to live the life we could not live. And this is unpacked in the book of John. In the beginning was the Word. Now that word uh, is referring to Jesus. And in the Greek in which this letter was written, it's logos. And the Greek mind thought that this was the reasoning order behind all things. And John is appealing to a Greek audience here in his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. You see, he's separate than God himself. And the Word was God, yet He is God Himself, separate from God and yet God. This is what uh, Christians mean when they say the Trinity. 
All things were made through him. All things were made through Jesus. And without him, Jesus, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's jump to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, that word there in the Greek, dwelt, means tabernacled. And for those of you who know the Old Testament, the Old Testament tabernacle was where the very presence of God dwelt with the, with the Israelites. It was the tent in which contained the local presence of God himself. And so here, this is saying, Jesus came in human flesh like the tabernacle, and God dwelt inside of a human body. And he walked among us. He tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, Jesus came as a normal human being, a normal Jewish boy living a normal Jewish life up until he hit about age 30. And he was baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And upon Jesus' baptism, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, comes down upon Jesus and remains on him and empowers him to do ministry. And after that baptism and after the Holy Spirit comes upon him, Jesus begins to perform miracle after miracle, after casting out demon, after miracle, after raising people from the dead and, and restoring sight to the blind and hearing uh, to the deaf. And he casts out demons with a word and they, he calms the sea with a word. And he is showing, I am God and all things obey me. Sickness, death, nature, demons, all things. But it's amazing that when he commands people to repent, he actually gives them a choice. Isn't that amazing? He says, repent. In other words, turn from what you're trusting in, turn from your false story, and turn to me and embrace me as God and for the forgiveness of your sin. And yet, he gives you that choice, man. It's amazing. Now, Jesus, as you know, we, we still live in, a, in a, quite of a Christian America, and so you, you've seen crosses on people's person. You've seen them on top of churches. Uh, what is the cross about? Jesus himself went to the cross. It was a Roman tool for torture and execution. And after three years of ministry, he went to the cross to pay for the sins of all those who would ever trust in him. We're celebrating Jeff and Gina's sins being removed by Jesus on the cross tonight. Hey, that's what we're celebrating, in essence. The sins of myself, the sins of Jeff, and the sins of Gina have been removed from them and from me and placed on Jesus. And on the cross, Jesus soaked up all of that anger that God had toward me and has towards you if you're not in Christ, if you haven't trusted him. And it lands on Jesus so that it doesn't have to remain on us on me, on Jeff, on Gina. And so, after Jesus dies on the cross, he is buried, and this is what Easter is about. On the third day, he rises from the dead. And then he stays for about 40 days on earth, showing himself alive to many witnesses. In fact, Paul says 500 at one time. Most of them are still living. Okay? And so, the, the witnesses are there. Go ask them, Paul says. Okay? And then he, rise, he rises up into heaven. We call it the ascension. 
And then 10 days later, 50 days after Passover, we call it Pentecost, the promised Holy Spirit comes and he lands on the 120 followers of Jesus and they begin to tell about Jesus. And friends, would you believe that because of that event on Pentecost in the first century, there are worshipers of Jesus on every single habited continent on the globe. Do you know where the concentrated amount of Muslims are? Middle East. What, what, about, what about the Buddhists? Asia. What about Hinduism? India. Where are the Christians? Worldwide. How do you explain that? How do you explain that Jesus is worshiped in every tribe, every language, every nation, and every people group all over the world, all over the world? Do you know where the church is growing the fastest right now? In what's called the global south, exploding in south of the equator and diminishing, sadly, in the United States, Canada, and the developed west. Sad. And we've, we kind of have had our chance. And so at Pentecost, Peter, the lead of the apostles, preaches this sermon. And he tells of Jesus from the Old Testament because he's talking to Jewish people. And then uh, he tells them that you are responsible for the death of God. And here's what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it, by death itself. And as, as Peter tells this story of Jesus, the people hearing this story are moved upon by God himself, the Holy Spirit, and they ask, well, what should we do? What should we do in light of this message? Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people in one day believed and were baptized. And then as you continue to read the book of Acts, it's the story of the church spreading throughout the whole Roman Empire, the Mediterranean world. And lastly, for two minutes, and I mean two minutes, I want to explain what's going to happen in this water right here, okay? Last thing we're doing. And I'm going to do it through Romans 6, 3 to 5. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Rome, he says, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Now, this is a little confusing, but listen carefully, right? This verse 3 of chapter 6 is not specifically talking about water baptism. And it's a little confusing because it says you're baptized into his death. What does that mean? Okay? Baptism means Immersion. It means to go under. It mean, in fact, in the first century, this word, baptizo, when ships would sink, it was said they were baptized. 
When cloth was dyed, like say you had white cloth and you wanted to make it purple, you would baptize it in purple, cloth, in purple dye. Okay? And so what he's saying here is you've been plunged into the death of Jesus like a ship sinks and is now in the ocean. That is a spiritual reality for all Christians, is that when Jesus died on the cross, Christians who believe in him and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins, they are in Jesus, and as he is being punished for sin, not his sin, he's being punished for our sin. And we are baptized into his death. Now, this is symbolized by the way that we practice water immersion baptism. The person goes under the water, and it's symbolizing death, and they come up out of the water, symbolizing what comes next. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. That's into his death and into the death of our old selves. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so as, as Jeff and Gina come up out of the water, it's symbolizing they are resurrected with Jesus. They are not their old selves. They are new. They are in Christ. Jesus' death was for them, and his resurrection was also for them. And so now they are cleansed and in Christ, and they are living a resurrected life. Perfectly? No. No Christian lives perfectly. But we live differently. We think differently. We are oriented differently, okay? For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. And this verse 5 is pointing to a future resurrection of all things. Now, I don't have time to unpack it, but the Bible does say that heaven will one day come down and cleanse earth and purify it of all defilements, of all curse, of all bad, of all sad. That's coming. And we Christians will live forever with a resurrected body in that new existence. Okay? That's the Bible story. What happens after you die? It depends on what you do with Jesus.